Welcome into episode 110 of the Robot Report podcast. I'm Steve Crow, editorial director of the Robot Report. Thank you, folks, for tuning in. Joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Mr. Mike Oitzman, founder of the Mobile Robot Guide. It's been a minute, man. Uh, hopefully, we know how to do this still. Right, Steve? It's been, been a couple weeks, and unfortunately, I got knocked sideways with COVID over the last uh, week, 10 days. Uh, got that coming back from the John Deere Tech Summit in in Austin, so wasn't expecting. That. <laughs> still worth still worth the trip though, I think, right? Absolutely, yeah. It was it was a, it was a great event. Uh, would I say it's worth getting COVID? <laughs> but uh, but the, it was an awesome trip, and uh, we're going to talk about that a, a bit here in the beginning of the show. Yeah, I can't believe you didn't get COVID before. You're like the last person on the planet to get COVID with all the traveling that you've done to all, all these different shows, gallivanting across the country. Uh, uh, I know, it's crazy. You, you know, and I guess that was good. My immune system was uh, was up there and I sort of let that immunity lapse a little bit but without getting the last booster shot and I think it finally caught up with me. Yeah, well, you're obviously doing much better. So uh, thank you folks for, for hanging tight. We've just been swamped with... Uh, a bunch of different things, but later on the show, a, a great show today. Later on, uh, we have a, a great interview with uh, engineering leaders at Zooks. You'll hear from RJ He and Ryan McMichael. They're leading really the perception stack uh, of Zooks and its autonomous vehicles, which just recently in the last couple of months hit the public roads out in California. As Mike said, he was recently at the John Deere Tech Summit. So we'll also hear from John Deere's Jorge Harad. So we'll play those a little bit later on in the show. Uh, but we are wrapping up the RBR 50 Robotics Innovation Awards. We're hoping to announce those later this week. Uh, we'll have a bonus episode of the podcast for you as well, recapping some of our more favorite winners in the RBR 50, some of the more innovative winners of the contest. Of course, we're less than a month out, Mike. This is nuts from the Robotics Summit and Expo. Was it it's three weeks away, I think, May 10th yeah. and 11th? In Boston, Massachusetts, you can go to roboticsummit.com to see all the details there. But uh, nearly 70 speakers, 150 exhibitors showcasing their latest enabling technologies, products, and services. Uh, really a, a two-day gathering with some of the greatest minds in the robotics development ecosystem. Uh, you'll hear from Mark Raybert, of course, founder of Boston Dynamics. He's now at the AI Institute. Martin Bueller, Global Head of Robotics R&D at Johnson & Johnson. Wendy Tan White, CEO of Intrinsic. Uh, her and I will be discussing a lot of different things, their acquisition of the Open Source Robotics Corporation. Intrinsic might be coming out with their first product uh, shortly after the show, I'm told. Uh, so we'll get some details on that. Laura Major from Motional, how we chose it from Carnegie Mellon. Jonathan Hurst, who we re recently added to the keynote lineup from Agility Robotics, who will be discussing the development of uh, their bipedal robot digit. So really the who's who of robotics development will be in Boston with us for two days, May 10th and 11th. Hope you can join us if you haven't already registered and gotten your tickets. Uh, still plenty of time. Uh, again, visit roboticsummit.com. Co-located with the Healthcare Robotics Engineering Forum, so two separate conference tracks dedicated to challenges of developing and scaling healthcare robots. Uh, so a lot going on. Again, we'll put a link to the to the uh, event in our show notes, but we we hope to see you all there. If you have any questions, obviously you can reach out to myself or Mike, and we'll try to help steer you 
in the right direction. Uh, okay, Mike, John Deere Tech Summit, give us the lowdown. How was that show for you? Oh, Steve, this was this was a great event. And first of all, I was fortunate to be invited. So I want to thank the folks at John Deere for for the invitation. Uh, and recall that I attended a similar event back in uh, December uh, from CNHI. They, they took us out to their test farm in Arizona. So this was really a unique opportunity to compare and, and contrast the technologies from both of these major uh, tractor uh, uh, companies. So that was really fun. I, you know, I'm com- coming into this now pretty well educated about the market and the technology and, and what's going on. So it was just a great educational experience. And we were in Austin because John Deere has recently bought some property uh, northeast of town, and they're setting up a test farm this year uh, that's going to enable them to test their equipment, their algorithms, uh, and so their software changes year-round. So re- you recall, otherwise, you know, they, they their headquarters are in Iowa, and it snows in Iowa in the yeah. wintertime. So uh, in Austin, uh, apparently they're going to be able to, you know, and they're also setting up a, a software uh, division as well uh, in Austin so that uh, they can make changes, they can test it. Uh, they'll be, you know, setting up rotating crops throughout the year. They can grow almost year round uh, and so that they can they can test those changes to things like machine vision. Um, and we're gonna, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll hear about things like their exact shot, uh, uh, seed planting capability, which is growing and evolving. It's fascinating uh, evolution there in which they're applying robotics. And so uh, that that's really what this is about. Um, it was also exciting because John Deere brought all of their technology leadership uh, to the conference and you know had a chance to sit down and have uh, coffee and meals with, with these folks, get to know them, uh, get to understand, you know, really what John Deere's uh, design philosophy is and you know, really where they're going. And then out on the test farm, we got to see all of uh, the equipment in action. And it, it was uh, really fun. Uh, you, to see- you had some great images and videos that you shared with Brianna and I. I think you saw the their autonomous tractor, right? I assume yes. that's the coolest thing that you saw there. Has to be, right? Absolutely. It was. So we got to see the, the John Deere 8R tractor in action in the field. Um, being operated and yeah it's very cool to see the tractor coming at you a big piece of equipment with nobody <laughs> on board uh driving straight towards us um and so it, it yeah, that was that was probably the the coolest uh, thing that we got to see um, how big is it in person i mean we were just so accustomed to seeing the videos and the pictures how big was it well the the tractors on the the 8r are, are about six feet in diameter Okay. So when you so when you see that tractor and you see those tires, those tires are six six feet. I'm six foot five ish, and so you you're know, a lot taller than that. I. I always forget that. You know, we don't <laughs> see each other too much in person, right? <laughs> but I always forget how tall you are. Yeah. So it's 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 intimidating. You know, and the 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 eight that they had had uh, eight wheels, so it had dualies on on all four corners. Uh, so you know that that's a, a big wide squat machine. Um, you know, when, and when you, you know, the only bigger machine that was on the, the farm was the combine. The combine is by far the biggest machine that, that was out there. And that's not fully autonomous, but it, you know, it, it, uh, they, we, we got a chance to, I got a chance to ride in the combine while they were demoing the, uh, you know, the auto sync between the, the grain wagons and, and the combine. Uh, that's, you know, another key feature, not quite full autonomy, but it, that auto steer capability that they've had for, for 30 years. And then 
Uh, also got a chance to watch and write on the uh, sea and spray uh, technology. So, you know, that's also intimidating because that's a 160-foot boom uh, that, that runs behind that machine so they can do multiple rows. So I've got some video uh, of that as well. It's very interesting to see that uh, in operation. And then uh, another very cool demo that uh, we really got to get up close and personal with, and I've, I've had a YouTube video out of for the last couple of weeks on this, will be also a part of the story, is uh, the what they call their exact shot robot, and that's R-O-W-B-O-T. Hmm. So, so this is the idea that um, uh, the, the planting drills, which have been around for 100 years, Steve, is mechanically planting seeds. Yep. They've been innovating and doing that for more than 100 years now. But what's new is that it's all now has servos on it. It's got all of these mechanisms and sensors so that they can control the exact feed of seeds uh, into the ground and place those seeds exactly where they need to be, exactly spaced. Every seed is, is precisely placed uh, in the furrow. And then this uh, exact shot idea is that it's placing a seed and then it's also spraying it with a little bit of fertilizer. And, and rather than just continually spraying, which is what they've done for the last couple of decades as they planted this, um, now they're, they're also, uh, with the control system, knowing exactly where the seed goes, putting a little spray of fertilizer and only on, on the seed as opposed to wasting you know, the fertilizer that would, would have been sprayed between the seeds in the row continuously. So they can save you know, 30 awesome. to 60% of the of the um, fertilizer, which also helps save costs for the farmer. So, you know, a lot of this innovation uh, that John Deere is putting forward is in sea and spray and here in the fertilizing with exact shot and, um, is, is helping to reduce chemical usage, which helps the farmer save money, which of course helps the equipment pay for itself. And so, you know, that's a pretty uh, important um, feature <laughs> that farmers appreciate is, is saving money. Sounds like we need to get them to the field robotics engineering forum. Uh, yeah. That robo business in October, October 18th and 19th. Well, I'll tell you what, but between uh, the John Deere uh, uh, event and, you know, all the other events that I've been to, I've been, I've been pitching all of these ag companies. We're going to have a, 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 a great attendance from, from the ag community uh, at the field robotics event. So if, if you're involved with ag, um, you know, put that on your calendar for uh, October um, I think we're going to have a great a great meeting of the minds out in in Santa Clara for that event. So um, to sort of wrap this up, I had the opportunity to sit down briefly with Jorge Harad. He was the co-founder of Blue River, which was acquired by John Deere and which brought in the sea and spray technology. He's now VP of Autonomy at John Deere. And so at the at the end of the event, uh, I had a chance to sit down with him and recap what I had seen. Get pick his brain for. Uh, his thoughts on on this technology. So let's listen to that interview now uh, with uh, with Jorge and and get a good recap on, on the event. All right, well, I, I'm here at the end of the John Deere uh, Tech Summit. I uh, got a chance to sit down uh, with Jorge Harad, uh, VP of Automation and Autonomy. Jorge, it's been a wonderful week here in Austin. I mean, the weather was hot earlier this week, and we had a beautiful day today to be out at the farm. And I just wanted to get, have a chance to sit down and catch up with you about some of the things that I saw, some of the exciting things that are on the roadmap that I learned about this week, and, and you know, get your perspective on, 
where you sit in the organization and the things that are exciting to you. So, you know, one of the, the big things that, that I learned this week and got to see today was, the, you know, the evolution, you know, from the auto steer to the auto drive now, or I, I don't know the correct branding here, but can, can you tell us, a little, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the excitement that you guys are bringing to the market now with, with full driving tractors and, and what that means for John Deere. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, let me start by saying thank you very much for spending time with us over yeah. the last couple of days and uh, bringing your audience along uh, yeah. along for it. Yeah, been been a pleasure talking about the different things we've been talking, um, we've been uh, working on over mm -hmm. the last over the last few years. So yeah, we maybe a little bit about myself. I, um, I I'm an engineer. Mm -hmm. uh, I I worked. Um, in the agricultural and technology space for a number of years uh, before joining the year. And then what I did is I uh, started a company uh, called, uh, called Blue River Technology. Mm -hmm. And this was a company that I co-founded in 2011. Mm -hmm. And it was working on this selective spray. Uh, instead of spraying the entire fields, just spraying where it's, where it's needed. Uh, that, that became a product now called CN Spray. Mm -hmm. but John Deere got to see it very early, and in 2017, uh, John Deere acquired Blue River right. to, to bring that technology, the CN spray technology, uh, in, into John Deere's portfolio, but mm -hmm. also to bring the expertise of uh, perception of yep. computer vision machine learning into into John Deere because we we thought John Deere thought we could we could put it in a lot of a lot of vehicles, and since 2017, I've been working. On, on making that happen and mm. m m working on on different uh, different projects for for John Deere that most for the most part combine computer vision machine learning uh, so now jumping into into autonomy mm -hmm. autonomy is one of the products that we're working but it it leverages a lot of things that John Deere has been working on and your team for a number so of, your number team brought that that knowledge into the organization that skill set and, and you're, you're taking that now further into the, the product line, yeah? Yeah, so, 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 the, um, so my team, one of the, one of the things that, uh, that, that we work in the automation autonomy group is, mm -hmm. uh, is, is full autonomy. Mm -hmm. But full autonomy uh, works um, by building on a number of things that John Deere has been working for for a number of years, mm -hmm. right? One of the big building blocks is GPS. Yep. Um, this is a, a technology that John Deere um, has had for about for about 20 years uh, through through the acquisition of a company called Navcom, mm -hmm. uh, based based in Torrance, California. So really precise GPS and and, and, and GNSS capabilities mm -hmm. um, that got integrated into a product also called uh, AutoTrack. And AutoTrack is a product that nowadays, I would say, almost all our customers, or, or almost all our large customers use. Uh, and this is a technology that allows uh, the vehicle to steer by itself. So you can go hands-off and the vehicle will, will, will steer. Let's say if you have a square field, it'll drive perfectly straight. Perfectly right? straight, if you, if you have a Yeah, and if you have a, a, a contoured field, it'll, it'll drive perfectly perfect contours. Mm -hmm. So we've had that, that product uh, for 15, 20 years now mm -hmm. as, as John Deere. And a lot of these capabilities of, uh, 
of integrating GPS and inertial sensors and, and the mechanics of the vehicle is, is, is our mm -hmm. thing that, um, that we already had. But now when going to autonomy, we've been able to add a couple things. One is the ability to control speed, including mm -hmm. stopping, mm -hmm. um, and the ability to see any objects that are, that are in our path, in the path mm -hmm. of our machine. And, um, and uh, what, what the um, automation autonomy uh, a group has done is, in particular, installed cameras that see all around the vehicle. We have six pairs of cameras that are seen in the front, in the back, on the sides, mm -hmm. and uh, can, can detect any obstacle coming our way. And uh, that allows us to stop uh, when, when we see something in front of us. Uh, and if you add, again, the capabilities we had with AutoTrack, together with the ability to stop and accelerate and the ability to, to see obstacles, you put it all together, you, you get an autonomous, an autonomous tractor. Um, uh, one of the other things we do is whenever an obstacle is, uh, is encountered, we send a message over the phone to, to, the, uh, to the user, to the farmer. Mm -hmm. And the farmer can then see that obstacle in, in, in his or her phone, right? Decide what the correct action is mm -hmm. and, uh, and select the correct action. For example, if it's uh, something in front, it can say, hey, go around it. Okay. Or if it's, uh, if it's something that is, uh, I don't know, a weed or something, uh, a crash bag or something, it can say, hey, just continue going, mm -hmm. drive over that. Or the farmer can say, hey, wait for me, I'll, I'll go there and, and check it out and, 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 and tell you what to do. But the, the nice thing about it is that we have now what I would call somewhere between level four, level five uh, SAE uh, autonomy. Okay. Right? So, so the, the farmer can go and uh, do something else. So, and we got a chance to see that today now. Uh, there's a, of all the workflows that happen on the farm, you're applying that first to tillage now. Right, and, and, and that seems that's one of the the big chores on the farm. But but why why tillage for autonomy is sort of the, the low hanging fruit to, to begin to deploy this uh, technology. Yeah, so so tillage is the first the first application that we're doing, and, and we chose it for for several reasons, but the two that I'll highlight. One of them is um, if you think about um, tillage, which is preparing the field, it happens after after harvest, so mm -hmm. there isn't much in the field, right? Mm -hmm. All the crops have been have been already removed, harvested, and uh, it's from from uh, the technology side, having an unobstructed view mm -hmm. makes things just so much easier, right? If we encounter any obstacle in our, in our path, it's, it's what we call, uh, uh, any any object in our path is what we call an obstacle. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, another thing that happens that is uh, really nice in tillage is that it, um, there's no refilling. It's, uh, this is preparing the field, so it's just basically dragging. No seeds some to post, refill. No new, seeds. No, no, no chemicals, chemicals to refill. Nothing no, to offload. No, nothing to offload. So, yeah, okay. so it's a standalone process, and you just basically need to drive the entirety of the field. So, so technologically, it's the simplest problem. Mm -hmm. But um, the other reason we picked it is that tillage is typically done, especially the tillage we're starting with, is typically done at the same time as harvesting during mm -hmm. fall. So you're typically uh, trying to do a lot of things uh, during harvest, and harvest is the number one um, time for labor use. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to drive the, your combine harvester, you're typically driving, the farmer is having somebody drive a grain cart next to it, 
the uh, farmer is also or, or is arranging for somebody to, to transport the grain from the field to the silo. To market. You know, yeah, and, and then there's somebody offloading it, mm -hmm. maybe drying the grain and managing the, the elevators. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you're trying to do the ditch. Yeah. Right? And that's a, there's a lot of things uh, happening. So, mm -hmm. so there is a big labor crunch, especially during this time of year. And uh, another thing that happens is all the farmers are trying to, to do these same things at the same time. So, yeah. so it's a big, um, big push for, for labor. So this combination of, of technologically simpler than mm -hmm. other operations and mm -hmm. uh, big need is what drove us to tillage. So, so in theory, if, if you had a, a, a 8R autonomous tractor, you could, you could come through and harvest the, the field, go to the next field, and then kick off the the tillage in that field you just harvested at the same time you're driving the combine in the next field That's and exactly. then monitor what it's going on with it, um, doing its task while, while you're doing another task. Yes. yes, that's a, that's exactly it, right? Yeah. So so the farmer and crew can be harvesting field Which one. is a priority. That's yeah. what they care yeah, about. That's that's the, yeah, if you don't yeah. harvest it, you get into right. a lot of trouble. But the, yeah, in the prior field, you can, be, you, can be, um, you can be tilling and you can also be... I don't know, attending to, to mm -hmm. the encounter sending obstacles so you can be resolving them. And that, that's the, the way it works. In addition to that, you can operate at night, mm -hmm. um, right? So, so at the end of the day, if, uh, if you need to go and do something, something else, um, if, if it's the end of the day and mm -hmm. you, you're ready to retire and go to bed, right? Uh, you, you can go and do that knowing that, that there is the ability to for the for the tractor to continue and get the job done. Hmm, interesting. So Jorge, what you brought it up a little bit earlier. You know, one of the interesting companies that you just acquired. We talked about. We covered this a, a, a couple months ago when when the acquisition happened. Is Spark AI, another uh, Bay Area company, doing interesting things. Uh, talk to us about uh, what that technology is and why that's important for the autonomy roadmap. Yeah. So Spark AI is an accelerator to our autonomy roadmap. Mm -hmm. Right. The way it works is. Um, the tractor sometimes sees what uh, sees sees uh, something, mm -hmm. right? And when in doubt, what we have is our machine learning set to be super conservative. Mm -hmm. When in doubt, it stops, mm -hmm. right? But not all the reasons it stops are, are really because there's something in front, a real obstacle. Uh, but sometimes, for example, it's a bird that flew next to the camera, right? And, the, and, the, and our, our tractor just stops. Mm -hmm. um, um, it, sometimes it's, uh, I don't know, a shadow or a large weed or a puff of dust that Could, that could goes, it be a standing stalk of corn that got missed? Something that got missed, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so anyhow, something that is not a real, uh, a real um, obstacle, right? Uh, something that, so, so if it's the, um, the tractor, what it does when it sees something like that, it acts very conservatively and stops. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and you don't want to be distracting the farmer to make a decision when there's really nothing there, mm -hmm. right? Like a puff of, of dust, let's imagine that, right? So what we do instead of, of bugging the farmer is we send these images to, to this company that is now part of John Deere called mm -hmm. Spark AI. Mm -hmm. And they have a really good system where they have two humans that independently look at the image and they have some, some software to make sure that they, it highlights and adjusts mm -hmm. brightness and contrast and whatnot to see what is in that image, and if it's a real obstacle, it, it gets now deferred to the to the farmer to handle what it wants to do. Mm -hmm. But if it's not, if it's a, a false positive, again, this puff of dust, 
then uh, then it says no there's nothing there mm -hmm. you, you you can continue driving and the, the tractor continues driving and that's very nice because the farmer again is doing something else and we don't want to be distracting uh, uh, a lot uh, let's say the farmer went to sleep right so you mm -hmm. want to wake up the farmer to 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 try to resolve this um, so this is a way that we can get high productivity for the machine high degree of safety from 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 the machine and yet um, uh, not, not, not only that, uh, we, we get all the images that, that, we, that cause a stop. So that data comes get, back into the loop get now us to, to train. To, to, for further training for the model to evolve this false positive That's to right. evaluate how to, to deal with that so, situation. So the machine learning gets better. And so a, a beautiful application for closing the loop in any control system is to, to, to make that system better over time. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. It, it is, an, so back to what I was saying, Spark AI is an accelerator, right? It allows us to deploy sooner and allows us to train our system precisely on the cases that are hard. Well, great. Hari, thanks for your time today. Uh, it's been a wonderful event. I, I really enjoyed myself and, and learned so much about uh, John Deere, the future, and all the wonderful people that, that you guys have on board and uh, pilot and the ship. So thanks again. Thank you very much for coming over. All right. Awesome stuff. Thank you, Jorge. Mike, you know, one of the things that you and I and Brianna often talk about is the, the first time you see a robot in action in person, up close and personal, you sort of, you learn a lot about it, right? And you have these aha moments. Did you have, by any chance, an aha moment after coming away from that event? Yeah, I think one of the biggest aha moments I had, we talked about how intimidating the the ADAR tractor can be just because of its size and, and what it's pulling around the farm. Um, and, you know, the, the demonstration was done with a smartphone. So so the John Deere representative sat there, had a smartphone, basically just swiped right to start the autonomy. And so, you know, that means that that tractor and that, and that cell phone have to have a, a, a high-speed bandwidth connection to, to start it and then for the tractor to um, communicate with the farmer. And as we just heard from Jorge as well, you know, Spark AI puts a human in the loop so that uh, one of the promises that John Deere is bringing to their end user is that, uh, you know, if something happens, um, you know, this the, the human in the loop is going to try and recover it, figure out what's wrong and, and maybe, uh, you know, bring it back into to operations without interrupting the farmer. Uh, if it happened to be an edge case. So one of the biggest hurdles that I realized, you know, that all of these ag companies are are facing with it with an autonomous future is the availability of, of rural high-speed connectivity, right? And so I, I, I'm going to make a statement here that I don't think any of these ag tech companies are going to succeed without solving this problem of, of rural high-speed connectivity. And John Deere is attacking it head on. They actually talked about this in one session during the, the conference and that uh, John Deere is actually talking to some of the low earth orbit satellite companies like Starlink about opportunities to bring high speed internet uh, to these rural communities, right? And, and whether, I don't know what that relationship could ultimately look like, but you can imagine John Deere is a brand that all these farmers trust and makes sense that John Deere could ultimately go into high speed bandwidth Right, not huh. only to support their tractors, but it, then it also brings benefits to the farmer, the farmer's family, you know, to have access to the rest of the world over the internet. Right, their kids are growing up in a modern world; they want access to the internet. Um, and so that that I think is one of the biggest hurdles that this this market needs to solve right now, 
And it's especially important for John Deere uh, because uh, in Brazil, for example, Brazil is one of the biggest exporters of crops like corn and wheat and soybean, right? And it's also one of the least connected parts of, of the world as well for as much ag that, that they support. So uh, it's a big deal for John Deere to bring their autonomy to Brazil until they solve uh, uh, this problem with, with uh, you know, the, the rural high-speed connectivity. Is Elon a fan of John Deere? I mean, maybe maybe he can get together with those guys and license yeah. the, the Starlink technology, perhaps. But that, that's a good question. So so we'll have to to see and follow that. Yeah. Oh, very cool. And uh, you published a pretty in depth review of the John Deere Tech Summit today on the RobotReport.com, which again we'll we'll put a link to that story in the show notes. But uh, great job as always going to these events, Mike. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Uh, so we're going to stick with autonomous vehicles, but we're going to switch domains. So we're going from autonomous vehicles on the farm to autonomous vehicles on public streets in California with our friends at Zooks. Uh, again, we recently had a chance to sit down with RJ He and Ryan McMichael uh, to discuss mainly perception, but we get into a lot of different things. Those two guys are helping spearhead their perception stack on their autonomous vehicles. Uh, I've known RJ going back to his days at Optimus Ride, which was based here in Boston, they actually brought one of their vehicles to I said, the first or second robotic summit and had it on the show floor, which was pretty cool. So uh, great to see RJ having continued success. But again, we discussed perception, sensors, machine learning algorithms, uh, and, and different technologies that are enabling the progression of their unique autonomous vehicles that are just starting to hit public roads in California. The only other car, Mike, autonomous vehicle that I can think of that looks anything like theirs is the one is the Cruise Origin. It's these ride-sharing vehicles that don't have a steering wheel, designed to pick up more than one person uh, on on a street or a, a an off, office park or something like that. But pretty unique vehicle, don't you think? Absolutely, and I think this is what was fun to talk to these guys uh, about was you know their unique. Uh, approach to uh, autonomy. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think it, at the end of the day, as we're going to learn, it's one of the reasons why they've taken a little bit longer path to, to market um, because they didn't start with a uh, standard vehicle and retrofitted or attach sensors to it, right. And be able to put a safety driver in it with a steering wheel. Right. So they've had to, to take a, a slightly different path to market. And so I think that's part of what we're going to, we're going to learn. Uh, you know, in terms of how they've they've designed this whole system, but I think the end game is a very interesting one, uh, and very very uh, well positioned, you know, for public transport uh, in the vehicle configurations that they that they're designing. Yeah. So, folks, if you're if you remember, they were acquired by Amazon. Is it two years ago now? I, I can't remember, but for upwards of a billion dollars. So we also discussed that a little bit uh, about the relationship with Amazon and, and other potential applications. What's next? So a really great interview. Here's RJ He and Ryan McMichael from Zoops. All right, Mike, one of our favorite topics on the show, obviously autonomous vehicles. We've had a, the great chance to talk to many of the leaders in the space over what the last 110 episodes or so. One of the companies that we haven't had a chance to, and I'm so excited that they are here today, is Zooks, of course, uh, owned by Amazon. It was a couple of years ago, bought for over a billion dollars. So we're gonna dive into their recent deployment, learn a little bit more about their sensing technologies and their perception stack 
that's enabling their robo taxis to start hitting the public streets out in California. And to do that, we're joined by Ryan McMichael. He's the director of sensors and systems for advanced hardware. We're also joined by RJ He. He's the director of perception at Zooks. Ryan, RJ, really appreciate you both being here. How are you guys doing? Thanks a lot, Steve. Yeah, uh, really excited to be here, doing well. Um, looking forward to chatting through this with you today. Um, great to be here with you and Mike. Yeah, uh, likewise. Thanks, Steve and Mike, for having us here. Yeah, no, the pleasure's ours. And RJ, I'll direct this first question to you. Uh, I think it was about a month ago where you guys came out and announced that you were starting. I think you had done some closed uh, closed course testing for, for a while now, and you were getting deployed publicly on public roads for the first time within uh, the corporate campus out there in Northern California. Can you just update us how that's gone? Maybe for people who missed that story, take us through what that route looks like, what that deployment looks like. I believe it's still only available to maybe Zooks employees. Just tell us how that's gone for the first month or so. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, about a month ago, we were very proud to announce that we uh, were the first to have had a um, ground up purpose-built robo-taxi operating on public roads, not corporate campus, uh, public roads between our two buildings uh, in Foster City, California. Um, and it's been it's been awesome. Uh, Ryan and I both had an opportunity to get a ride on the vehicle. And honestly, it's uh, both blown us away in terms of the smoothness and the comfort and, and the joy of being on that vehicle. But maybe more importantly, that that is really the future of transportation. It clearly will be how people will get around cities uh, in the future. Have you, because uh, you were at Optimus Ride for a number of years, so somewhat in a similar environment, right? Uh, so, well, actually um, here again, we are operating on public roads. Um, and again, you know, really the first, uh, the, the, the first company to have done so with a ground-up purpose-built robo-taxi. And that really includes, and we're talking about, you know, 35 miles and uh 35 miles an hour roads with traffic lights and uncontrolled agents, um, you know, in uh in those conditions. And so uh very proud of what we've been able to accomplish. And that really just sets the foundation for um, what's to come, which is to, to grow and expand our service uh, beyond, as you mentioned, uh, employees only at the moment, uh, but it, looking towards the future to open it up um, further. And Ryan, how about you? Because you've been at Zooks for, what, over seven years now? Not quite from the beginning, but pretty early on, I believe. Um, it must be exciting for you to see the progress that you guys are making. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, being here um, from some of the earlier days and just seeing how how far the team has come, um, it's been an incredible journey. Um, and just you know, building on what what RJ was saying, you know, being in the vehicle, going up you know up to thirty five uh, miles per hour on on open public roads, you know, navigating through intersections, um, being around pedestrians and vehicles, and you know all the things that you would expect on a public road in this ground up vehicle that was purpose built for autonomy was indescribable. Um, and, and, you know, the thing that's so interesting about it is that you, you step into that vehicle for the first time. Um, again, you know, no steering wheel, no brake pedal. You're kind of transported into this new version of, of point to point mobility and, and you start moving and you just think, wow, this is magic. Right. Um, 
but it's incredible how quickly it just feels normal. I mean, you know, 20 seconds into the ride and you're sort of like, okay, like time to check some email. Maybe I'll take a nap. You know, <laughs> it's, no, it's, 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 uh, it's funny you say yeah. that the first time I took a ride in a robo taxi was man, probably six years ago, seven years ago, um, out in, in, uh, Las Vegas during CES, it was me, one of my colleagues at the time, and it was with, uh, torque robotics, which I'm sure you guys are, you know, those guys. And I had this, we had the same reaction. We were probably in the car for five minutes going through the, the downtown Las Vegas and it just felt, no, they had safety drivers in the car, right? In, in both the front seats. And we had the same reaction that you just said, is you quickly feel like you're just in a regular taxi. Was, was, and you totally forget that no one's actually driving the car. So it's it's amazing. Great. Yeah, no, and it's always really good to hear about other positive experiences in the industry too. And um, we just, you know, RJ and I both just couldn't be more excited about the progress we've made and, and you know, what's what's to come. So. So Ryan, give our audience, I think some of them will know what your vehicle looks like, but it's certainly different than some of the other uh, solutions that are to market already. Um, I had a chance to tour and sit on the vehicle at CES this year, although it wasn't moving, it was on the show floor, right? So had a chance to have that experience of of the environment of the vehicle. But again, there's no steering wheel correct in this vehicle it's it's more of a of a public transportation like experience than a personal vehicle like experience if i was to sort of encapsulate it it's exactly right and and really it is one of the things that uh, distinguishes the zooks's approach um and in fact you know even since you know, i started in 2016 and uh, frankly even before that the vision for the company has always centered around this purpose built ground up vehicle and and the idea that from day one it wouldn't have a steering wheel wouldn't have a brake pedal right and um certainly uh even zooks we we have a level three fleet that we use toyota highlanders um that we retrofit with sensors and and so forth to do testing what we what we saw from some of our competitors in the early days is that that approach was intended to actually be a product um and that was fundamentally different from zooks's approach right we always saw the product as this custom built ground up vehicle. Now, I'd say several years into our journey, you know, fast forward to 2019, 2020, started seeing other folks in the industry adopting a similar approach um, and and going for that ground up vehicle. Um, But we, you know, couldn't be more excited about, um, you know, about this uh, vision that we've had from the beginning and, and really being the first company out there to get this ground up vehicle certified and on you know, public roads uh, in California. Yeah, and you know, in terms of the imagery, um, one one can could think of a horse carriage or a carriage of the old, you know, and it's, it's somewhat uh, ironic. It's, it, it sometimes feels like, you know, in the evolution of transportation, we are, what we think, coming one full circle uh, to have, you know, these autonomous carriages uh, just without the horses. Interesting. Yeah. Well, can you guys, I would estimate that taking that path through all of this development, you know, without a steering wheel, without the ability to, in a sense, put a safety driver in the vehicle, like the other competitors are doing, has led to the longer path to where you are today, you know, as opposed to some of the others who have, are, are running the vehicles, you know, without safety drivers in public today, but you've always been on this long to get to where you are. Is that fair 
assessment? Um, I, I think we have come to realize, and maybe the industry has come to realize that uh, a ground-up, purpose-built robo-taxi is really the only viable approach to commercialization, mm. um, partly because of, uh, you know, for, for many factors. Um, that's it. I think it's important to also clarify that that doesn't mean that we do not have a fleet of um, vehicles with safety drivers, you know, on the roads, uh, collecting data and testing out software and systems mm -hmm. on a regular basis uh, to ensure that, you know, we are collecting the data uh, to build up what we call a safety case, right, which is the set of arguments and body of evidence to show that our software and systems are, uh, you know, robust and able to operate in a, uh, what we call human plus level of safety. Um, so that's all very important. That's, um, and, and we take a lot of, we put a lot of resources to ensure that we do that level of testing and, and rigor as well. So we do want to jump into the perception side of things, since that's where both you gentlemen are, are uh, specializing in. Uh, RJ, I remember seeing a video, I believe on LinkedIn, maybe a couple of months ago now, where you broke down the perception stack that Zooks uses in this vehicle. So maybe before we start jumping into some of the more technical questions, can you just explain to the folks who are listening to this, the perception stack that you guys are using right now? So on that front, maybe, maybe Ryan, you want to start on the sensors front and then I can chime in. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so quick overview of our sensing suite. Uh, and, there, you know, we can go a lot of different directions with this. So feel free to, to probe Steve and, and Mike. Um, but, you know, at a, at a high level, um, we're using uh, visible cameras. You know, that's like red, green, blue, visible imaging. We're using radar. Um, we've got LIDAR on the vehicle, laser sensors. Um, we use microphones uh, to detect sound. Um, and we also have uh, thermal imaging, um, which helps um, tremendously with uh, detecting uh, heat from objects. Um, you know, all these sensors sort of work together to deliver this robust sensing data product to perception. Um, and, uh, you know, that's sort of at a high level. And maybe I could hand it over to you, RJ, just to talk a little bit about how you guys utilize all that information coming in. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we on perception are very focused on processing and uh, internalizing that data in order to see and understand, you know, the world around a vehicle. Um, and what that involves is not only, of course, detecting and classifying um, different agents and objects, such as vehicles, pedestrians, and cyclists, uh, but also more importantly, you know, in order to operate robustly and safely in, you know, these environments, to also understand the, the scene around the vehicle, right? And what I mean by that is, um, you know, understanding complex scenarios such as construction zones with, you know, everything that's going on, cones, uh, people directing traffic and so on. Uh, but also in addition to that, really understanding the intention of the different agents in the environment. Um, so that's, for instance, that pedestrians are intending to cross the road, uh, or they're actually yielding to a to our vehicle, right? We need to go pretty deep into understanding um, what the intentions of, of the different agents are in order to ensure that we operate safely and robustly around them. Did you guys see there's a video of, I think it just came out, I just saw it today, maybe it came out a, a couple of days ago, 
where uh, Bill Gates was taking a ride in a robo taxi around, I think, downtown London and very congested. Do you guys, um, and, and, and this company was claiming, I think that they don't have to map their streets. They're able to perceive things in real time. Where, where are you guys with that? Are, are you, do you require, you know, maps of environments that you hope to be navigating in? Can you do some real time stuff? How does that work for Zooks? Yeah, you know, so uh, Steve, we're excited that uh, folks in society at, at large are uh, excited about AV technology and want to get in such vehicles and experience um, products from different companies. Uh, to your question, um, here at Zooks, we are focused on, you know, based on our business model and, and the product that we're building, uh, we are focused in uh, specific geofences uh, that are rapidly growing over time. Um, and so we do rely on um, HD maps that we built and we localize in. Um, and uh, we think, at, but at the same time, we also just as importantly ensure that we are robust to changes in the world environment um, and ensure that we can react accordingly to that. For instance, as mentioned, you know, just uh, construction zones are an example where the, the environment can change and, and we also need to be robust to all of that. Well, I think you brought up one example of, of the fact that it, your your machines have to operate in a constantly changing environment, whether that's the the other vehicles on the road, whether that's construction, whether that's the weather, right? So there's a lot of, a lot of hurdles that are thrown in front of the vehicle every day that it's going to have to deal with. But I think that it, it's part of the bigger question here, which it, we can easily ask from where we sit watching this market develop, which is, you know, why is it so difficult? What's what's taken so long? You know, we, we thought we would be where we are, I don't know, maybe five years ago. Um, and, but can, you know, that that point at which we're going to have, you know, level four, level five uh, solutions on the street uh, seems to keep getting pushed out further and further. Um, you guys are in the trenches every day dealing with the the, the technical problems that come up trying to, to make this system do what you intend it to do. So can you give us some insight as to, you know, really why th this problem is, is maybe more difficult than we anticipated, you know, even five years ago and why, where the, now I, I assume it's a lot of the edge cases, it's handling a lot of the exceptions, it's dealing with that because again, you've got the public in the vehicle, around the vehicle, they're, they're, an accident is not acceptable in any way, shape or form, of course. So I think the margins are tiny and the bar is high, but, but can right. you give us your view on that? Yeah, no, I mean, and lots of good insights there, Mike, on the, on the nature of the problem. Um, you know, I think you know, first and foremost, just to mention that um, for several years now, we've had the, the core architecture for our robot, you know, that is uh, like, if we talk about sensors, for example, you know, which sensors, how many, where do we put them? you know, to, to solve autonomy, um, the sort of, you know, basis and, and, and foundation for how we're going to use that sensor data um, to perceive the world and drive, you know, a lot of those core decisions have been locked for a long time, right? And, and, uh, and so it hasn't been so much, you know, burning and churning on, on what's kind of the minimum viable architecture um, that can, that can create an autonomous, you know, point to point robo taxi product. Um, and and we feel really confident in the architecture we've set ourselves up with um, to get you know to public roads. Obviously, um, I would say a lot of the remaining work um, involves you know validating uh, the architecture we've built 
sort of dotting the I's and crossing the T's, if you will, really doing that validation, collecting the road miles, doing the simulations, um, you know, spending time on closed tracks in structured scenarios to, to validate those edge cases that you alluded to, to really demonstrate safety um, in all the, the conditions that we care about for our vehicle. Um, you know, so that's a lot of the technical side, and I'm sure RJ will have more to add there. Um, and, and also just to mention, um, outside of the technical, you know, I think we continue in parallel to really hone this product uh, and user experience for the customers, right? And I think um, going back to, you know, ground up vehicle, no steering wheel, no brake pedal, right? Like, we're really reimagining that, and and we intend for that to be a world-class experience. Um, and so that's something that we're, you know, continuing to, to hone. Um, as we approach our, our public road uh, debut uh, for customers. But yeah, RJ, do you, do you have more to add there? Yeah, absolutely. Just a bit on what you said. Um, you know, I think here at Zooks, we really see ourselves as being safety fanatics. You know, that means that, you know, beyond just developing the vehicle and the AI systems and the technology, you know, just as critical is really building up a what we call a strong safety case. Right, which is again the the set of arguments and the body of evidence to show that our entire system is is operating robustly and safely. Um, so you know, and that we want to make sure that anything that we put on roads is is going to be safe. Um, at the same time, I think thinking just more broadly and generally, um, you know, here we it, it's worth noting that we as an AV industry are really trying to change right the future of transportation. Mm -hmm. um, and and given the safety critical nature of the work that we're doing, it's really not something that we can we want to move fast and and break things, right? And and so I think in that regard, if you if you think about it on what the mission that we are trying to accomplish here, and and the uh, the nature of the task, I would argue that you know we are actually moving at kind of the right speed to to move quickly, both quickly and safely. Yeah, I mean, just seeing some of the. Again, some of the companies that are are, are have been doing public robo taxi services for for fees right now. You, you see a lot of things coming out, you know, just in the last couple of weeks where you know they've taken a little bit of a different approach, right? But um, I, I'm I'm curious, do you guys does the Zooks manufacture and, and build any of their own custom sensors? Um, there was sort of a shift a couple of years ago especially on the LiDAR side of things, where some companies were bringing the development of their LiDAR uh, sensors in-house, whether that was through acquisitions or, you know, just, just building their own from, from the ground up. Do you, can you guys comment on that? Are, are you building any of the sensors that you build in your, in, in your stack yourselves, or are you using uh, everything from third-party companies? Um, it, you know, it's a good question. We haven't um, revealed too much about our supply chain, to be honest. Um, there are a couple of suppliers that we've announced, like, for example, for our thermal cameras, uh, we partner with a company called Teledyne FLIR. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we, use, we use their thermal systems, right? And, um, you know, looking at the vehicles, especially our, our level three vehicles, the Toyota Highlanders in the city, um, for folks that are familiar with the industry, for example, familiar with common LIDAR that are, that are out there and readily available, um, you know, may recognize some of the, the sensors that have been, you know, on our vehicles out, out in the world. Um, but, uh, but we can't comment too much on sort of internal, uh, developments that, that may be happening. Got it. What about, so there's this, uh, uh, the, another common debate in, in the self-driving world is, is vision cameras versus LIDAR. Um, 
what what are your feelings on that? Um, I don't know, RJ, maybe we'll start with you on this one. Why would you use both of those? Why would you use one versus the other? Where where does Zook stand on the, the vision versus LIDAR uh, debate? Yeah, it is certainly a topic that comes up frequently. Um, from, from our standpoint, we absolutely believe in the need to rely on not just these two modalities, but all the modalities that, that Ryan mentioned earlier. You know, again, with safety at the forefront, um, you know, you want to take advantage of all the strengths of the various sensor modalities. Um, you know, each each are really complementary, right? As an example, vision clearly has very rich information um, that that we use to infer, you know, intentions and and understand the environment. Uh, but lidar, on the other hand, is really great geometrically. Right, um, you know, providing geometric information. Uh, similarly, radars with long range and velocity and dealing with adverse weather conditions, um, thermal uh, cameras along with IR cameras, great for heat signatures for uh, agents such as pedestrians and animals. Um, and so, why would you not use all of these uh, modalities? And in fact, I think we, you need that in order to make that robust safety case. Um, to and and most importantly, at the end of the day, we we now have you know much more richer information than human eyes alone, right? And 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 so therefore, I think we have a very strong ability to demonstrate that uh, we can operate much more safely than human drivers on the roads. Just going to add to that, um, all good points there um, from RJ, and um, you know, for us, there's really two key things. <clears throat> that we keep in mind when we design our, our sensor architecture. And uh, these two things um, are redundancy and diversity. Both are tremendously important. And so for us, redundancy means, okay, if I'm going to have cameras, I'm going to have more than one. I'm going to have multiple cameras. So if one goes down, the other one can can cover it, that sort of thing. Diversity, you know, on the other hand is, okay, not only am I going to have cameras, but I'm going to complement that with LIDAR or radar, thermal imaging, microphones, right? And both of these things are, are so foundational in the way we've laid out the sensors on the vehicle uh, in terms of the number of them and where we place them to really have, you know, that overlapping fields of view and, and that, that sort of coverage uh, to have that 360 robust, you know, uh, view of the world for, for perception. Um, and, uh, you know, again, Vision versus LiDAR, I think, has has taken a front seat in a lot of these conversations. I think that having both plus the other sensors is really key to enabling that robust uh, sensing suite. So I want to ask you a question. You guys, we've been talking about, you know, the sensors, the sensor modalities, the type of information that's coming in. We focus on, you know, what, what each sensor is a special specialized for i think the other part of that equation though is the amount of information that you gather every millisecond from these devices and put it through a, a sensor fusion pipeline that you you've got to throw away data that's not important you've got to you know find the information that that is important you know if if lidar is giving you some data points that you're not seeing with vision you know how do you, what does that mean for the you know the, the state of the scene in front of you um, and I think on the other side of this, that I saw this uh, firsthand the last year following the India Autonomous Challenge um, vehicles, right? What They're driving at 180 uh, kilometers an hour now, 
And, uh, you know, things happen very fast for them. They've had that problem of sensor fusion and figuring out, you know, how to, to make a decision, uh, make the next set point for the vehicle and close that very quickly in a, in a few milliseconds, right? Uh, you've got a similar problem, albeit at lower speeds uh, on public streets. But but talk to us a bit about, about that part of the, the design of the system, how that's evolved and what other technologies have, have evolved in parallel to, to make that problem feasible now. Uh, sure. And so I'll comment a little bit on the AI software side of things and maybe uh, defer to Ryan on, on the hardware side of things. Um, so, you know, I think the state of it, the AI technology is definitely advanced really quickly, right? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. about ChatGPT in, in recent times and how it's sort of taken over the world. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, AI software technology, especially with regards to perception, has also moved uh, really quickly. And, um, you know, broadly, I would say that, um, you know, we're certainly, um, there have been a lot of advances in what is known as sort of early sensor fusion, um, as opposed to a more traditional late fusion in the past. And, and that has really also helped in addressing some of the, um, you know, potential challenges with, with bandwidth and, and, and networking that, that you alluded to. Uh, but, but we think that, that that's the, that is sort of the kind of kind of direction um, that enables us to uh, really take advantage of all the the rich information across all these sensor modalities and and the complementary information that's available. And maybe Ryan, you want to chime in here? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And and there are various things that are being contemplated at the sort of the sensor level. Um, you know, uh, before the data leaves the sensor, let's say. Uh, perhaps combining some processing there, um, you know, some more algorithmic development to take what is a very rich data product, you know, sort of the rawest data product and process that in a way um, that extracts, you know, only the most useful features um, so that we can simplify some of the shuttling of data around the vehicle. Um, and those are, you know, ongoing conversations. I think there's a lot of really exciting uh, technologies that are sort of evolving in that space. Um, you know, for us, where we're at right now in our architecture, um, we feel really good about uh, the the sort of system that we've built, the the networking infrastructure that we use on the vehicle to shuttle data around, uh, get the right data to the right places on time. Um, you know, that's something that that we focused a lot on, and um, you know, I think we've we're we're in a good position to launch the product, uh, and it's just a matter of looking ahead. You know, two, three, five plus years from now, and thinking about how this will continue to evolve. Um, cause we know that, you know, sensor data products are only going to get more dense, right? I mean, there's only going to be more and more data available uh, that people want to use. And, uh, so we're just going to have to kind of confront that engineering challenge as it comes. So can I read into that? Uh, can I read into that, that, that there's more hardware involved with, with that processing the edge compute as well as that's evolving, you know, getting faster, giving you more. Uh, capabilities to to do a lot of that um, in in hardware, firmware as opposed to to software as well. Yeah, I, I think this really highlights the value of a ground up purpose built robot taxi, right? Where we can and need to have that tight vertical integration in both mm. at the hardware level, you know, down to the, the sensors and the firmware, the networking, as well as the AI software, right? And, and so that's that's the value that we get, you know, here at Zooks with our team, you know, Ryan and my teams working very closely together, in addition to others, of course, and, and ensuring that, you know, those, those requirements are very made explicit. And as advances happen in both hardware and software, uh, we are collaborating and exploring um, new ideas 
um, and, and ensuring that state of the art is is on our vehicles. You know, it's a combination of hardware, software, firmware, all working together. Um, we're tracking the space, but but as he said, you know, our teams um, partner very closely to kind of monitor this and understand how how the tech's evolving to really accommodate you know the data products that we intend to use in the future. One of you guys talked about simulation a little bit earlier on in our conversation. Um, and I know there's many different uh, simulated environments out there. And uh, you, you see these edge cases that pop up in the real world and you can't replicate and you can't plan for all of them while you're training a system in simulation. But can one of you guys just, just explain to us how Zooks is using simulation to uh, inform itself as good as it can as to how these systems will perform? in the real world and maybe some of the lessons that you've learned uh, through simulation before deploying in the real world. Absolutely. Uh, we are firm, we at Zooks are firm believers in, in simulation and we have a fantastic simulation team uh, that is really developing all sorts of cutting edge technologies and tools to enable all the things that you just mentioned. Um, you know, that is uh, everything from uh, using simulation data to augment our training of our machine learning models um, to edge cases that may be hard to simulate in the real world um, to also validating uh, the end-to-end -end performance of our system. Um, it is important to be very thoughtful about what you use simulation for. It is not ever going to be a uh, complete replacement of real-world testing, which is why we also, um, you know, as Brian mentioned, have invested in a, a testing fleet to, you know, identify and capture real-world scenarios. Uh, but, uh, you know, as we scale to multiple cities, um, you know, uh, we you absolutely have to rely on uh, technologies like simulation in order to be able to validate our performance um, as well. Well, as our models, uh, sorry, value our performance uh, of our models and the entire system, you know, in uh, these cities as we scale. And in addition to that, also, you know, weather conditions and, and other edge cases. Yeah, well, you brought, talking about weather conditions, let's drill down on that question for a minute since we got you here. Uh, we recognize that weather is one of the biggest variables, I think, in, in autonomous driving outdoors. Having watched the warehouse robotics grow up without that that uh, problem. So what, what have you learned? What, what are you doing? How are you uh, evolving both the sensor decisions uh, on the vehicle as well as, I don't know, your perception decisions uh, in terms of understanding when weather is impacting what you're seeing in the scene and or how you anticipate that's going to impact your, you know, your capabilities to, to drive in a, I don't know, a, dri a driving snowstorm <laughs> or the rain or the fog, this kind of things. Yeah, it's especially relevant considering the diluge that we've had in California over the last couple of months. Right. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, on, on the hardware side of things, um, you know, weather, adverse weather has been a, a big topic for several years. Um, I actually think this is one area that's particularly ripe for innovation. In, in autonomous vehicle technology, um, you know, at, at like sort of the first order level, uh, we understand that different sensor modalities have different technology limitations. You know, for example, when you are looking at camera images and you're in heavy rain, there's a lot of a lot of occlusion there from the raindrops and from water, right? And just as you would, you know, as a human driver looking through a windshield, you'd expect visibility to decrease when the rain gets very heavy. 
Um, of course, on our vehicle, we don't just have cameras. So going back to the point about you know redundancy and, and diversity in the sensors fleet, um, we have radar, and you know radar tend to be um, <clears throat> much less impacted by adverse weather just in general. Um, certainly rain. Um, you look at other conditions like fog, um, which may be difficult for LIDAR, for example. You know, the laser light at that wavelength tends to scatter quite a lot in fog. It makes it very tough. Um, but then you look at modalities like thermal infrared that, you know, have a much easier time kind of seeing through that condition. So to some extent, we get it for free just by the complementary nature of the sensing suite and the technologies we're using. Um, but, you know, we don't want to stop there, right? And this is where I say there's, I think, a lot of room for innovation in this space because we've started looking uh, quite a lot at sensor cleaning uh, systems, systems that will actively, you know, improve the performance of, you know, say, cameras uh, when they start to get uh, wet from rain and that sort of thing. Um, you know, um, a really sort of maybe obvious implementation is putting heater uh, heater elements on systems so that uh, when there's condensation and that sort of thing, you know, uh, or the conditions for condensation, you avoid uh, getting that condensation on the optical elements. Um, so we've taken some steps there. We continue to innovate in this space. Um, I think it's a really exciting area uh, to be working on the hardware side. Um, and, you know, of course, all that kind of flows downstream to our, uh, to, to RJ and his team, our, our customers who, um, you know, are trying to make sense of this data and, and determine whether, um, you know, uh, we're able to to drive to the same degree uh, in all these conditions. So um, anyway, maybe that's a good chance to, to hand it over to RJ to add some there. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, Ryan's absolutely right. Um, I think on the AI software side, um, you know, the ability to reason jointly over all of these sensor modalities um, in these uh, is probably what allows us to be able to operate uh, robustly and safely in these adverse weather conditions as well, right? Um, you know, whether that is um, reasoning of using radar more in some of these rain, fog, and snow conditions, or taking advantage of long wave IR, um, but but doing that jointly over the entire sensor space across the different sensor modalities is is probably what what is going to be critical to uh, unlock these weather conditions and um, for commercial product uh, commercial operations. Couple more quick questions before uh, we let you guys get out of here. Again, really appreciate you guys taking the time to, to talk with Mike and I here. You know, we talked a lot about the perception capabilities and other capabilities of your system, a lot about the challenges that are involved with deploying and scaling these systems in public environments. If you guys, maybe you can both answer this one at a time, but if you guys could both, you know, we call this the blank check question. If you could just somehow magically make your biggest challenge with safely deploying these things magically disappear? And I know it's kind of a fantasy question, but what would that one challenge be that would make this process, you know, a lot simpler for you? I guess, you know, make a change. And if you could snap your fingers and have a million miles on the road, um, you know, uh, that would be, that would be nice. Right. Um, I think uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of work that happens in the background. I mean, you know, maybe to answer a little more seriously, there's a lot of work that happens in the background to validate uh, changes that we make, right? And mm. uh, even when we're not making changes, right, just to validate the system that we built. Um, and it's a combination of, of road miles, uh, you know, obviously simulation data. We mentioned closed track testing, all that stuff. Um, 
and it just, it it takes time. Right. And, and so, um, you know, that's certainly an aspect that, um, we're always working to improve our infrastructure and and tools and, and processes across the fleet to do that, that faster, um, you know, to get those answers and that feedback quicker and ultimately, you know, verify that, that what we've built is safe, um, so that we can, you know, move on to this exciting part of producing a world-class service. Um, so yeah, I don't know, maybe I'd start there. RJ, yeah, I, I definitely echo, I definitely echo Ryan's comment about validation and, and, you know, again, the whole body of evidence that's required to, uh, validate our safety case. Uh, but maybe in addition to that, I would say societal acceptance, uh, right. Of, uh, in, you know, having society, accepting what it means to be operating alongside uh, autonomous vehicles to recognize that it is actually going to be a safer form of transportation. That's going to take time. I'm not sure if any amount of money will solve that problem, but that will be a critical element that we will need uh, for large-scale rollouts of these uh, types of solutions. Yeah. And and I don't I don't think you guys can probably answer this next question, but I, th- I think we do have to ask. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if Mike and I would be doing our jobs if we weren't. I know you guys are both so hyper focused on on this application right now. You are owned by Amazon, uh, which is you know the one of the largest certainly uh, companies in the world, and logistics is is their expertise among other things. Have there been discussions about other types of applications that maybe autonomous vehicles could be used for at Amazon? I know there's some other companies that are working on autonomous yard trucks and some other companies have tested their vehicles for delivery services with different types of companies, but is that been talked about at some point down the road? What, what can you tell us about that, if anything? We, um, yeah, we, we, first of all, I mean, just to take a step back, um, the, the Amazon acquisition in general was just so powerful for Zooks, right? And we're, we're incredibly thankful for the opportunity, um, you know, to be under the Amazon umbrella and, and to have their full support as we move this, uh, product to market. I mean, that's just been tremendous for us, um, you know, for, for a number of reasons, and and one of the things that's just been clear from day one in that relationship is that we are you know laser focused together on getting this point to point mobility autonomous vehicle product deployed in dense urban you know with with uh, with paying customers and um, in the same way that we envisioned it seven years ago eight years ago um, you know and and I think that level of support and dedication has been has been clear and consistent and we're super excited about that. Um, and you know, that's really just where the company continues to focus for now. Yeah. So I think Ryan and I can both definitively confirm that there is zero talk of anything outside of, <laughs> uh, you know, right, tr- rider transportation, you know, we're again, we're trying to change the future of right transportation. That's a, obviously a huge market and we can mm. make, uh, you know, meaningfully uh, make a meaningful dent in that space. I think we'll, uh, we'll be all set. Excellent. Well, hey, before I let you go, um, in part of researching for the interview, I was looking on the website, looking through your uh, open jobs, and I noticed that you guys are very supportive of engineering internships. And I mentor a, a FIRST Robotics team and actively follow the careers of my uh, team alumni. So uh, tell me, you know, for, from both of your perspectives, what makes for a great uh, internship experience for an undergraduate engineering student uh, come to work at a company like Zooks? 
Yeah. Um, well, first of all, that's super cool that you're, you're mentoring, uh, that robotics team. Uh, it's really wonderful, um, you know, to be giving back there and, and helping with those alumni. Um, I think, um, you know, at Zooks, we, uh, we have a very active internship program. Um, it, you know, in, in my time at Zooks, I've seen a number of extremely successful, uh, progressions from interns to full-time and, um, you know, they've really, uh, transformed and had a big impact on our business. And that's been, that's been a great return for us. Um, as far as the in- internship experience, you know, we really feel it's, it's sort of a one of a kind experience where students get to work with this state of the art technology in this emerging industry. That's, you know, going to, to transform transportation and, and at the same time, receiving mentorship from, um, from some of the, the industry leaders um, that we have here at Zooks, um, folks uh, much smarter than myself. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a great, um, I think, opportunity for folks to uh, invest in their future, right? We really approach the career development of interns uh, with that in mind, you know, developing mm-hmm. their future, giving them a holistic view of the industry, giving them the tools they need to be successful, um, you know, whether, whether they pursue a career at Zooks or not. Um, of course, that's the goal, and that's what that's what we hope to find is that right fit. But but even if it's not, you know, we we really encourage students, um, you know, beyond the walls of Zooks to really be successful. Um, I had one intern on my team a few years ago. Um, you know, did an internship. Uh, with, he was exceptional. Um, ended up pursuing a graduate program afterwards, and had a chance to write a little letter of recommendation for him, and kind of you know, send him in that direction. And, and he's been tremendously successful. So it's great to p- see people, you know, excel, um, you know, kind of coming out of that program. Yeah, my, I mean, that, that is a very important question. I think that fondly to, you know, my time in college and how transformative that was in, you know, my career. Um, and so we take our internship program very seriously. As Ryan mentioned, you know, we have, uh, it's a very deliberate program, ensuring a, a very um, you know, comprehensive experience during the time that the interns are with us. Um, but I think it, it, this really gets at, you know, the kind of culture that we have at Zooks, and this goes, of course, beyond interns, but also our full-time employees, um, who, you know, and ensuring that we grow and develop every individual um, employee or team member, um, ensuring that they have, they get exposed to what's going on uh, beyond their teams. You know, we're working, we're, uh, you know, 2000 plus person company working on a single product. It's so critical for that cross-functional nature, but it also means that there's such great development and growth opportunities uh, for everyone. Um, you know, we, we talked about the hardware software integration. That's that's rare um, that in, in most products. And, and here we take advantage and we celebrate that. Um, so I think we have a great culture at Zooks where uh, folks work really collaboratively and, and learn from each other. Um, and I think that translates to, you know, the kind of experience that our interns um, and just team members all get. Does Zooks have any openings for robotics journalists who just want to ride around in autonomous vehicles all day? Maybe I can be a user experience researcher for you or something. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to look into that and uh, and get back to you. <laughs> don't, don't lose yeah, my well, number. But that- yeah, that's right. That sounds like a great idea. We should add that to the list, I think. <laughs> uh, yes, we should absolutely stay in touch. <laughs> yeah, when you, when you get up and running those uh, in Boston, I'm not too far away, RJ. So, uh, hey, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate you both, again, taking the time out of your days. I know you guys are both super busy uh, getting these systems up and running. 
Um, so it's been great to watch the the progress that you guys have made, and uh, you know we'll be t continuing to follow you guys closely. Of course, when when you guys have new developments and deployments and uh, news to share with us, make sure you reach out, and uh, we'll be happy to pass that news along. But Ryan McMichael, Director Sensors and Systems for Advanced Hardware, and RJ He, Director of Perception at Zooks. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much, Steve and Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to those guys for, for taking the time to join us on the show. Uh, Mike, any quick closing thoughts about Zooks and their autonomous vehicles? Well, you know, I'm I still I'm still an engineer. I'm still a geek. I, I love the whole concept of talking about closing the loop with with what the sensors are doing and how those two teams work together, you know, from the, the physical sensor uh, selection, sensor fusion, and then throwing that into the algorithmic part um it that that helps design and evolve uh in rj's team uh you know those teams have to work closely together and it's obviously that they're they're a core part of of the success in the future you know for this platform uh and it was you know it's really fun to get their insight uh as to as to how they've built their organizations and, and built their teams and, and are moving forward yeah brianna's talked to them at least once maybe a couple of times i've never talked to anybody at zook so it was great to finally connect with those guys, get some insight from them. Very exciting time, as you know, for autonomous vehicles. It's it's probably my favorite thing to cover at this point. So uh, they're they're making some moves here, right? They're, they're uh, maybe a little bit behind, like we said before, some of the competition, but they've taken a little bit of a different approach, as you said. So we'll obviously continue to follow the developments coming out of Zoots in their autonomous vehicles. Uh, we have you covered with our family of publications. You can find us at the Robot Report, Mobile Robot Guide, Robotics Business Review, and Collaborative Robotics Trends. Uh, again, before we go, a couple things to plug for you folks. Uh, Robotics Summit and Expo quickly approaching May 10th and 11th up in Boston, Massachusetts. Nearly 70 speakers, 150 plus exhibitors, two days of networking and robotics development education. There's a career fair, uh, a robotics challenge from our friends at Mass Robotics. We're co-located with the healthcare Robotics Engineering Forum, which has two, two dedicated tracks, excuse me, about the challenges of developing healthcare robotics systems. You can find this all at roboticsummit.com. Again, May 10th and 11th up in Boston. Mike and I and Brianna and the whole crew will be up there for the full two days. Uh, so if you haven't registered already, there's still plenty of time to do so, but it's, it's unbelievable how quickly this is approaching. Uh, so hope to see you guys again in Boston at the Robotics Summit. Just yep. go to roboticsummit.com. Dot com rbr50 is done mike uh, another another one in the books we're just putting the finishing touches on that but it should be out later this week right mike a big exhale on that one right it's been it's been a long road it's 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 so much fun but it's also so much work every year but uh, i enjoy doing it and i can't can't wait to, to celebrate all the innovation from a another awesome year in, in robotics yep so if you haven't received an email that you've won stay tuned you'll be hearing from either mike or brianna in the next day or so uh, that you've won for those who didn't win thank you for submitting uh nothing personal right there's just only only so many awards that you, we can give out in the rbr 50 um but uh we'll be doing this again so it's a lot of fun so uh you can always try to win again next year but again be on the lookout for the reveal of our rbr 50 robotics innovation awards 
later this week. And again, Mike and I will be back for a special bonus episode, two episodes of the podcast this week uh, as we recap some of the more innovative, unique winners from the RBR 50 Robotics Innovation Awards. And again, thank you to everybody who submitted. Thank you to all the sponsors who have uh, continued to support that program. And thank you for everyone who's tuned in to episode 110 of the Robot Report podcast. Uh, we're going to be doing this again every single week. We have a, uh, some great interviews lined up here in the can already. So you can listen to us anywhere you find your podcast. Please subscribe, leave us a rating, give us a review, tell your friends about us. We'd really appreciate that. On behalf of Mike Oitzman and the entire crew, my name is Steve Crow. Thanks again, folks, for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week.